Hello, and thank you for joining us. This podcast is called Gen Z is Angry. I am Caroline, and I'm one of your hosts for this episode. I am Ella, your other host, and Audrey will be joining us later. This podcast will cover topics regarding leftism, climate justice, and more. We will invite different guests on for every episode who have knowledge about the topic. Today, we will be talking about Thanksgiving and decolonization. We will also be talking about the roots of Thanksgiving, Indigenous history, and current Indigenous organizing. Stick around because later we will be interviewing two Indigenous activists, Imani and Charlotte. First, we are going to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. We are often taught in elementary school that Thanksgiving is a holiday to commemorate a sort of treaty between Indigenous people and the religious separatists who colonized Plymouth Rock in the early 1600s. But there is a darker truth here that we are not taught about because our government and society refuses to give Indigenous people a seat at the table. Through multiple wars, including the French and Indian War and our history of racist exclusionary policies, such as the Indian Removal Act and our collective failure to honor land treaties, we overlook the voice of Indigenous people and our violence towards them. We also further do this by educating school children that the relationships between European and in- settlers and Indigenous people were peaceful. When in reality, their relationship was bloody and filled with violence. For example, the Mayflower docked on the shores of Plymouth in the fall, and in the and the ensuing winter was brutal. Many died from disease and exposure. Most of the settlers remained on the boat throughout the winter. In the spring, many of them moved to shore and were greeted by Indigenous people. Their peaceful greeting was met negatively by the pilgrims. In fact, many of the Native people were taken slaves. One of them was documented as Squanto. Squanto showed the pilgrims great kindness and unmerited kindness when he was forced into slavery by the Europeans. He taught them how to harvest corn. The following fall, when the corn Squanto helped plant was harvested, the pilgrims decided to hold a feast and invited local tribes, local native tribes to join. Unfortunately, the European settlers carried a variety of diseases the tribes had never encountered, one of which was smallpox which wiped out a large portion of the native population. From this moment on, and even before the first Thanksgiving, the relationship between native people and European settlers was squandered. And with the ensuing belief of manifest destiny, native people were even further diminished and persecuted. Many of our ancestors participated in the destruction of native tribes and their land. We should not not commemorate the brutality. We should see Thanksgiving as a day of mourning, some say. We stole this land. Let us not celebrate it like it is our own. So now we're going to talk about land back um, and kind of what that means as a concept and as an idea. Land back is a movement with a long history of organizing and sacrifice of Indigenous people. The goal is to return Indigenous lands back into the hands of Indigenous people. There are lots of movements and resistant efforts all the way all across the world from Turtle Island to the north and south being led by indigenous people to be given land back and for the treaty rights to be acknowledged. In the US, everything is almost exclusively privately controlled by individuals or corporations. 
whose ownership the law is designed to protect. Land is controlled this way because of European colonization, the historic and ongoing theft and control of land, real estate, and resources has led to the extreme concentration of wealth among a, among a small group of people. Um, Landback also works towards an equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. It also must align with anti-colonial practices and be led by indigenous people. To talk about true redistribution of land with the decolonial lens is seeking to address the question, what would it look like to truly tend to the harm of the wealth extraction done by colonizers? So much public land is held by state and federal government. All of this land could be given to and be controlled by indigenous nations. But who gets to make the decisions about the land? Colonizers are afraid to give land back because that means giving up their money and power. Now we can talk about the co-option and commodification of the term. The term has become more of a slogan. The U.S. has nev never been committed to changing the material relationship between colonizers and indigenous people. Some institutions thinking performative land acknowledgments slash symbolic action is doing work. No, actually, change your relationship with the indigenous people and indigenous communities around you. We need to actually give land back and give reparations. We need to examine what you need to examine what your role is in sealing native land. And how you benefit from the extraction and the wealth of stealing the land. There needs to be serious repar reparations. Um, now we're gonna read some of the points of the Land Back Movement Manifesto. The first is that it is the reclamation of everything stolen from the original peoples. It is also a relationship with Mother Earth that is symbiotic and just, where we have reclaimed stewardship. It is bringing our people with us as we move towards liberation and embodied sovereignty through an organizing and political narrative framework. It is a long legacy of warriors and leaders who sacrificed freedom and life. It is a catalyst for current generation organizers and centers the voices of those who represent our future. It is recognizing that our struggle is interconnected with the struggles of all oppressed people. It is a future where Black reparations and Indigenous land back coexist, where BIPOC collective liberation is at the core. It is acknowledging that only when Mother Earth is well can we, her children, be well. And it is our belonging to the land. Now we are going to cover some history of Indigenous justice organizing. Indigenous people have always fought against colonization. They were not passive witnesses to the destruction of their culture. And here are some examples of that. The first one is the Arawaks that raised an army against Columbus when he first arrived. The next example is the Pequiotes defended, who de defended themselves against the pilgrims. The Delaware nation fought against Dutch colonizers who had killed a woman for taking fruit from a tree. This, this is known as the Peach Wars. King Philip, or Medicom's Warsaw, War, saw solidarity between Nipmuc's Narragansett's 
and Wampanoags as they rebelled from English rule. The Pueblo Uprising in 1680 drove the Spanish out of New Mexico for nearly a decade. As nations such as the Cherokee and Choctaw were relocated, Indian wars raged throughout the country, culminating in Custer's Land Stand, where Lakota, Cheyenne, and other Plains people decimated federal forces in a 24 standoff. Not all resistance to settlers was found in warfare, though. Spiritual and cultural rebellion were incredibly important in mass mobilization of indigenous people. The ghost dance movement, started by the Paute in 1869, was a belief that doing the ghost dance would help unite the living with the dead, end colonization, and bring prosperity to indigenous people. The dance was banned by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but nations such as the Caddo still practice it today. Boarding schools for Native children separated them from their families and tried to teach them to reject their heritage, but many parents would still hide their children from authorities and teach them at home. Students at the schools would often run away, refuse to participate in classes, pretend to not understand instructions, and in one case set a school on fire. Students would also secretly share their traditions with others, making food, dancing, and telling stories. They showed incredible resilience in the face of adults attempting to strip away a fundamental part of who they were. In the 1960s, Indigenous people joined the civil rights movement by demanding Indian rights and forming groups like the American Indian Movement, which participated in many headline protests, such as the 19-month occupation of Alcatraz Island, the week-long takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the 71-day occupation of Wounded Knee. There are many demonstrations highlighting the government's fail to abide by the treaties it had made, disrespecting native fishing rights and allowing toxic waste to be spilled on native land. The degradation of reservation land or historical land is a huge issue. We've seen this at Standing Rock and we've seen this in Washington state as the Puyallup tribe protested the implementation of Puget Sound Energy's natural gas pipeline last year. This year, we've witnessed the fight to release Native act- activists like Red Fawn Fallis and Leonard Peltier from prison. Now we are going to be joined by Imani, who is a uh, Native Mexican organizer here with us at Wake J. And she's going to talk about her experience with the erasure of her, her culture and what colonization means to her. So first, can you tell us a little bit about the organizational work that you do? Yeah, so I am a part of Wake J. um, And I am kind of new to the organization, so I'm still kind of finding um, which place fits best for me. But um, right now, I am on policy, um, which uh, it's just kind of a team within Wake J, um, I guess, where uh, right now we're talking about a bunch of um, stuff to do um, in 2021. Um, and before that, I was a part of other organizations, um, but most of those don't really reflect my political beliefs now. So. Yeah, but I've just kind of been trying to 
work with other like teen activists to try to you know do good things <laughs> I guess um that's really interesting um what would you consider your definition of decolonization decolonization yeah so um a little bit of context about me so I am half Mexican um so my dad immigrated from Mexico and my mom um my mom's white so on my dad's side um he's half Mayan approximately um that stuff gets kind of muddy because um unfortunately there was a lot of um mixing I guess that happened and we're not really sure um how much of that was um unfortunately consensual but um so I I'm still ever learning about um, colonization and subsequently decolonization. And I guess to me, that means um, listening to indigenous people and giving them back the things that were taken from them. And um, I, I don't know, <laughs> I think that that's something that I, continue to learn about but yeah that's really wonderful thank you so much I remember that uh when y'all sent me kind of the outline for what this was going to look like one of the questions that you talked about was erasure of native culture um and I definitely have some notes about that um because as someone who is technically part native Mexican, I unfortunately kind of felt the effects of erasure of native culture. Um, I, the Mayan language is still technically alive, but it's, there's not very many people who speak it. And I only know um, just like five words in Mayan. Um, and there, there's stories and the culture and the um, games and sports and stuff. A lot of that uh, was wiped out. And of course there was um, unfortunately a lot of forced conversion when the Spanish came uh, to colonize. Uh, well, the part of Mayan civilization that I descend from is, was, native to the Yucatan Peninsula. So when the Spanish came to the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, there was a lot of forced conversion and a lot of fighting. Um, and there was also a lot of pitting uh, different tribes and um, people within uh, the natives against each other to kind of create division um, and there was also a lot of disease that was spread when the Spanish came uh, it they wiped out uh, I think about 70 to 90 percent of the population of the Yucatecan Mayans so that obviously resulted in a lot of loss of life and a lot of loss of culture um, 
I did a little research before this because, uh, you know, but I um, found something that I didn't know, which is that the first recorded encounter between the Spanish and the Yucatecan Mayans was between Christopher Columbus's brother and um, some Mayans who were canoeing. Um, and unfortunately, um, Christopher Columbus's brother, I believe his name was Bartholomew. He uh, unfortunately took a lot of the people on that boat um, and forced them into slavery um, and also stole most of their belongings. Um, so, I mean, I don't feel like I have to tell you guys that <laughs> the Spanish like were not very nice to the native Mayans. There was a lot of um, cruelty, a lot of like forced com sub forced compliancy. That might be a word. I'm not sure. And like just a lot of terrible things um, that subsequently resulted in a lot of cultural erasure, a lot of lost um, language and lost um you know just culture in general so you know foods and stuff um but even from like all indigenous peoples uh the mayans still have a lot like that stayed um we i mean we still have people that speak mayan and we still have a lot of like recipes and um cultural um aspects of culture that um, held over. Um, it's actually, you know, kind of funny because since I was only really raised knowing Mexico as just the part where my family's from, the Yucatan Peninsula, there's a lot of things that I was taught that I thought were like true of all of Mexico, but are actually only true of the Yucatan Peninsula because of their strong Mayan um, presence. So I was taught when I was like a little kid that the way to say belly button is dooch, but that's actually the Mayan word for it. The real word, um, not the real word, the Spanish word is ombligo. So, you know, there's fun little stuff like that that um, held over. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that my little spiel about um Mayan culture I guess yeah that's really interesting um in what ways do you still see native culture being erased today um but speaking of how the role that the government played in that do you think that the federal government can ever um fully represent indigenous people um that's a great question. Um, and I think that it's great that you and like other people are starting to like recognize the problem too. Cause I think for so long people were just like kind of oblivious to, and still are. A lot of people are still very oblivious to uh, the suppression and silencing and oppression of Native people um, in the United States. Um, do I think the federal government could ever 
truly represent? I, I don't know because I am not a native person from the United States. And so I don't want to ever speak for them. Um, but I would say that, I mean, probably not, you know, not truly. Um, they could try, but I mean, it's, it's just so hard to think that like, after all they've done, they could just turn around and like, I mean, the federal government has broken promises and lied to Native Americans for hundreds of years. So um, I would like to hope that the federal government could at some point um, fully represent and support and honestly like either work with or be in favor of Native people. That sentence kind of made sense. But um, I just, I don't know if it would happen anytime soon. I, oh my gosh, I so badly hope it happens sometime soon. But I, I'm struggling with being realistic and being optimistic. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that we just, yes. Um, so, I mean, there's kind of the obvious way, which is um, people who ha have knowledge, like um, knowledge of the Mayan language, not um, teaching it to others and then passing away. That is the natural way that languages die um, and cultures and um, traditions. Uh, but I think that the other way is just kind of just misinformation, I guess. I know that when I go to my family's hometown in Merida, there's like a little like place called um, Paseo de Montejo, which is named after a Spanish colonizer, um, Montejo. And I, it's kind of crazy to learn about all the terrible things that he did um, and how he's still kind of idolized and how there's still statues for him. And like, it's, it's upsetting, you know? Um, and I think that idolizing the Spanish and the colonization, the colonizers is definitely a big problem. I know that speaking to different people, people from Mexico and people from Spain, they all kind of hear different stories, but they all kind of consistently paint the Spanish as like saviors, saving the Mayans from like, well, like savagery. Um, not that the Mayans weren't like violent. They were like accounts of Mayans <laughs> eating people but it's the the Spanish the way like just oh my gosh I can't even think of the right words but like the violence that they perpetrated is like it's terrible to read about like it it makes me like a little emotional not gonna lie but um how do I see Native 
culture continue to be erased today? I, I mean, honestly, I don't know because I wasn't, I wasn't able to learn a lot of my native culture because of how much of it was already erased. And it makes me really sad, you know, because that's a really big part of my identity. And it's a really big hole in, I know a lot of people's identities. Um, and I wish I knew more about it. I wish, you know, I spoke the language and I wish I could um, bring back a lot of the things that the Spanish took from us. Um, but I guess just seeing Native Americans being silenced, Native Americans as in the continent, but also in the United States of America, um, being silenced by uh, people and the governments in their respective countries. Um, silencing them and, you know, uh, schools not teaching, you know, accurate information. Um, I guess it's just all kind of systemically scratching away at what the Native people experienced and like who they were. We need to hear more Native voices and I need to hear more Native voices and I really can't, I can't say, but I mean, <laughs> they could do better. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but <laughs> that's really all I could say. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that is something that's very accurate. The government has very much disappointed Native people and obviously I'm not Native and, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've, but I have read several things that say like, what degree of reparations could ever make up for the damage that's been caused? Like what, like to what level is that even possible within our current system? Like, and so someone said that it's not possible, like, <laughs> and so that was an interesting perspective that I read. What are some ways that you think non-Indigenous people can support and assist um, Native struggles? That's that's a great question. And again, I just want to recognize that like, I might not be the best person to answer these questions because I am part Native, Native American, uh, but I don't, I'm not currently like, I am not currently in immersed in my Native, you know, the place where I am indigenous from, that made sense, I suppose. Um, and I can't say that I have possibly felt the struggle that Native Americans feel um, at all to the degree that they're experiencing right now. But I think that, and I know I said, I've said it probably a billion times, but just like listening and just, and, and educating ourselves and like, but also making sure to educate others and call people out um, because there's just so much, so much ignorance that's perpetrated through the American education system and so much misinformation that 
I think it's just so important to, you know, unlearn what we were taught and listen to those Native Americans who wish to speak. Um, obviously, they don't owe it to us to say anything, but I know that there are tons of Native people who would be happy to, you know, educate. And I think that it's so important to amplify their voices and to just, you know, shut up and listen and care um, and just take a moment to empathize and like listen to what they have to say. I know I'm like re-saying the same thing in like three different ways, but I mean, I really mean it, you know? It's just so important because for so long, they've tried, people have tried to silence them in all kinds of ways. I mean, sometimes the way to silence them was to like murder them. And it's just, I mean, it's terrible, but I think it's so important to just give them the time of day. I, I'm saying them, but like, I, I'm referring to like indigenous people, to give indigenous people the time of day and to, tr and to just give them, I mean, there's no amount of listening that's going to repair what damage has been done. But I think it's, I think it's important because then that way also, um, you know, people will become less ignorant and, you know, maybe there'll be one person that saw Christopher Columbus as a hero who will, you know, see him as a terrible human being. And I, I see that as a tiny victory. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for um, coming to this interview today. It was really it was really good to hear you speak um, and it's a really important issue. So thank you. Thank you. Next, we will be joined by Charlotte. Charlotte Town is a 37 year old indigenous and transgender activist currently living in Pasco, Washington. As a descendant of the Yakima Nation and an enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation, she often focuses on indigenous causes and struggles, but is dedicated to uplifting and fighting for oppressed people and groups worldwide. So Charlotte, can you just like tell us a little bit about the organizational work you do? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, we're a nationwide socialist organization and we're dedicated to the struggles of the working class and marginalized peoples and groups in the United States. Um, I'm also a co-founder of the CELA Alliance for Equality. And that's a small group fighting for the for safety and equality for uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, the LGBTQ community, and women and girls in the predominantly white and conservative town of Sela, Washington. Okay, thank you. So just like getting right into it, um, our second question is, is it possible to rebrand Thanksgiving that in a way that frames it as simply a time of gratitude and makes it no longer connected with injustice and why or why not? <laughs> sure. Um, so one of the things that I always uh, kind of like to disclaim is that um, as a native person, kind of one of the things that I was taught was to 
never speak for all natives. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what I'm saying are, are kind of just my personal thoughts on, on matters. And hopefully it doesn't come across that I, you know, am acting as some kind of authority for all native people, you know. Um, so <sighs> when you sent me this question, I was like, oh boy, they're really getting into it. Um, but so my take on it though, is that like, there's an aspect of native history uh, that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. And that's that, um, our, our ceremonies and our religions and holidays were all made illegal uh, a long time ago as official U.S. policy. Um, and it actually surprises a lot of people to find out that those laws were not actually lifted until 1978. Um, and so one of the ways that we kind of got around these laws and, and celebrated things without them being uh, branded by Indian agents as illegal was uh, to incorporate these things into non-native holidays. Um, so like, you know, some of the modern powwow dances that you see now, um, those actually grew out of like petitioning Indian agents to let us dance in celebration of things that they would approve of, like uh, say George Washington's birthday. And that's one of the ways that we kind of kept things alive. Um, so I think that it's entirely possible in that same kind of vein to uh, take something that uh, is, is kind of representative of colonization, something that's, that's representative of kind of this embellished and whitewashed version of, of events um, and make it something that is genuinely inclusive, something that is genuinely native. Um, that being said, I do, you know, I think that a lot of the condemnation of the Thanksgiving holiday is justified. Um, you know, and as I said, all that whitewashing, it's really meant to kind of present uh, the, the brutal colonization of this continent as some kind of happy fun time celebration. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of something that I'm conflicted about. Um, and I think that, um, but um, so, so I think that, you know, we have also, we have the potential to take a holiday that's centered around celebrating family and friends, and maybe we shouldn't throw them out that out. You know, we don't really actually have many of those. Um, that aren't really saturated and cheapened with consumerism. You know, we have, you know, things like Christmas and everything, but there's such an emphasis on buying things. Um, Thanksgiving hasn't really, you know, other than all the food everybody buys it, you know, there's not really this push to, to consume, consume, consume the same way that there is with other holidays. Um, but ultimately, I think more than any of those points I just made, um, which maybe some of them sound a little bit contradictory at times, um, is that to me, the most important struggle in this regard is dismantling all the ideological constructs that surround most, if not all US holidays, uh, Thanksgiving included. Um, because most of these holidays they're, that we celebrate, they're kind of meant to provoke this, this view of America as a shining city on the hill. And more than simply saying that we do or we don't celebrate Thanksgiving, I think we need to push for an accurate and truthful history that doesn't sugarcoat all these horrors of settler colonialism and slavery. Thank you so much. So mm -hmm. our next question is, what do you think are some ways that non-Indigenous people can support and assist Native struggles? And this is really broad, so feel free to interpret it anyway. Sure. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of different and good ways to get involved in, in indig Indigenous struggles, both like in your area and nationwide. Um, the internet certainly provides a lot of opportunities for people to 
keep tuned into native issues in maybe a way that sometimes mainstream media doesn't present. Um, we saw a lot of that with you know the Standing Rock protests. Um, mainstream media was very, very silent on that protest and it was kind of various alternative media as well as um, people on the ground there, you know, live streaming. So definitely kind of paying attention to those things and, and seeing if there's anything going on. Um, you never know when, you know, you might be seeing news coverage that's actually really close to an area that you're a part of. Um, the other thing too is that like, you know, I know it sounds like maybe really simplistic or even kind of a non-answer, but literally just getting out and finding out, you know, who, who are the indigenous people around your area? Because most areas do have, uh, you know, either urban uh, native organizations or they do have, uh, you know, reservations around them. Um, you know, just getting out there and seeing it, what, what they are struggling about, if there's anything that those uh, tribal nations are, are up to, anything they're campaigning for or fighting for. Um, just really try to get to know indigenous activists in your area. Um, and, but also like make a conscious effort to educate yourself on like the actual histories of the land that, that you do live on. Um, because really like another way that you can support us is, is again, promoting that accurate history um, and letting people know that we are still here and that we are still fighting for a lot of different, incredibly important things. Thank you for sharing. So our next question is kind of, related to what you said just about like activism and that kind of thing. So is there any issues that you would consider to be the most pressing to indigenous communities today? So I would say that, um, I mean, there's, there's several issues that I consider to be very, very pressing. Um, and there's some that I definitely try to raise awareness for and engage in campaigns for. Um, one of the, the, most important ones and one of the ones that uh, I think that a lot more people need to be aware of and, and um, I guess kind of help with and, and raise awareness for is the, uh, the MMIW movement, which is the, stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, so for those uh, that aren't familiar with that, um, we actually have a very high rate of uh, violence, um, sexual assaults and murders um, carried out against Native people, especially women and girls. And there's also a lot of evidence um, and a lot of statistics that show that a lot of that is actually carried out by non-Natives. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the, the most important issues. Um, but I think that one of the things that I kind of have to say about that is that even that, I don't know that we can necessarily say that we have a single most pressing issue because I think almost all these issues are interconnected and that a lot of them all stem from the limited sovereignty that we have and the colonial control over our resources, our politics, communities, and, and even our own autonomy. Um, so just to give you some examples of like how that all ties together, um, in the case of the, the MMIW uh, movement, um, so there's a couple different issues that contribute to that. Um, we have very limited and insufficient tribal control over um, law and the ability to prosecute non-natives. Um, there's after a, a certain point, if a crime is severe enough, it basically gets forwarded to the FBI where oftentimes it can get just ignored or you know, just not taken very seriously. Um, the, the various issues surrounding native communities as far as like you know, poverty, 
um, they, they make those communities very vulnerable to uh, sex traffickers and predators and they exploit those. Um, there's, you know, the perception that media creates, you know, the mascot issues and, you know, things like, um, I know it sounds silly, but even like the, you know, the sexualized Land of Lakes butter girl, right, you know, um, it gives this perception that, you know, Native women are exotic and exploitable. Um, another big one, actually, you know, we talked about like the um, pipeline protests um, and even the energy companies are part of that because uh, in addition to the, the environmental damage um, and the infringement on tribal sovereignty that they cause, another issue that's tied into that is what they call the man camps or labor camps. And those are the temporary camps that spring up around those projects that the, the workers, mostly uh, non-Native men, uh, work in. And it's been demonstrated. They have proven links that show that those camps increase um, all manners of violence against Native people and especially Native women and girls. Um, so again, you know, I mean, while that's just one example, I, I think that a lot of these examples or a lot of these things are all interconnected and it really shows that like they're all woven together as part of our struggle to uh, have sovereignty over our very being. Thank you so much. I love how you said all the ideas, like all these different things are connected to one big issue. In what ways you continue to see the erasure of native cultures? This can either be locally, nationally, anything. Sure. So first of all, I guess I'll talk a little bit about like, you know, erasure of native culture. I think that when we talk about the erasure of native culture, I almost prefer to frame it as like uh, an attempted erasure because a lot of the ways that they did try to erase us in the past as well as recently, um, you know, genocide, land loss, boarding schools, um, you know, the poverty and reservation communities, all those things that we faced, we are still here. Um, you know, we've certainly suffered tremendous losses, losses of cultures and we've lost entire native nations through settler colonialism, but colonialism, excuse me, but there is a lot that still remains. Um, I would say though that like in the modern area, in the modern era, like one of the biggest contributors to erasure is a lack of serious education about indigenous people. Um, still to this day, like I'll talk to people and you know, I, I, they don't necessarily know that I'm native. And, and when we get to that, I've actually had people as early as this year that, that believe that native people were wiped out and you know, to say the least, they're very surprised to see me. <laughs> um, but even the people that do know we exist, a lot of them still kind of fall on either side of like um, the ignoble and noble savage tropes. Um, you know, and that's kind of like, you know, ignoble is that we were like a warlike bloodthirsty people who deserved to be conquered. Um, and then the noble savage is that we were, you know, this innocent but primitive people who tragically were in the way of greater civilizations. Um, and so in that way, you know, a lot of people are very unaware of that, the specifics of native cultures in their area. Um, they're a lot more familiar with depictions of old Hollywood cinema. Um, <laughs> just to give a, a small example, I'm a powwow dancer and, and I had a tourist talk to me one time uh, asking about my outfit and everything. And they were actually blown away that I um, came to the powwow in uh, a car and didn't ride a horse um, and that I wasn't staying in, in a teepee. And I'm like, well, my tribe never use teepees or anything. So I, I wouldn't even if it was back in the day. Um, you know, so I mean, you know, that that kind of like depiction all comes from people's like romanticized perceptions and, and um, 
you know, old Hollywood cinema, cinema, and even like a lot of the times when people mean well, they get it really, really uh, wrong. And I think that's where a lot of other erasure can can stem from. You know, no knowledge of our sovereignty or our tribal governments or how they operate, um, all the cultural appropriation issues, um, this kind of insistence that a lot of people put on us that um, you know they're also native because they have a a family story about the the great grandmother being Cherokee. Um, and all these other things that just kind of relegate us to myth instead of really being able to engage as like the very real and very alive people that we are. Thank you so much. I can just like open it up really quick. Like if there's anything else you want to add, if there's anything else you feel important to talk about. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I'll make it really brief, um, was there was a question about uh, what decolonization means to me. And I think that's something that's probably important to touch on because it's not widely understood, even in activist circles. Um, you know, and, and when you talk to activists, sometimes you get, um, you know, people get really horrified when they hear decolonization because they think we're like somehow talk, talking about like shipping every non-Indigenous person back to their countries of origin, you know, where their ancestors came from, which, you know, that's of course, that's absurd. Um, but it's also like the idea that we're going to deport people is also kind of a colonial perspective in and of itself, because that's not really anything we ever did. We were always like trying to welcome people in our, into our communities um, historically. Um, so decolonization to me is like the release of colonial control over indigenous populations and lands. And it's the rec recognition of the full economic and political sovereignty, all those places, which is kind of something I've been talking about a lot. Um, and so I think that like, um, you know, there's gonna be instances of course where there's gonna be a lot of review of treaties and return of lands that were guaranteed in that process. But I think more than, you know, worrying about what individuals are living on tribal land, that's something that to me would occur as more of like um, private companies that uh, have really abused native land with the backing of the federal government and, and those like more modern thefts that occurred would have to be addressed. Um, so I think again that you know decolonization is not about kicking anybody out. It's really just about removing colonial control over our own um, governments and, and our very destinies. Thank you so much and thank you for joining us. No, um, I don't have anything to add, but I'd just like to thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining us. Um, you've provided us with a very valuable perspective. Thank you for coming to our first episode of Gen Z is Angry. Make sure to tune in for our next episode because we will be talking about disability justice.